0: Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. SoonerCon 31 is scheduled for June 30th through July 2nd, 2023, in Norman, Oklahoma. It promises a weekend full of tabletop gaming, cosplay, and appreciation for literary sci-fi as well as TV and comics. Visit SoonerCon.com for more information. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is designed by fans for fans, with the aim of harnessing the power of fandom to raise money for charities. The Hellmouth Convention celebrates all fandoms, but particularly things like Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you may not find anywhere else. The next event is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to this extremely writing-centric episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today's feature is all about the craft of writing. First up, we have author David Wilson on, who's going to be talking about how he got his start in writing and how it's driven him. We have a special writing offer from the Sci-Fi Coffee Company, and then we have samples of David's work available later on. I encourage you to stick around for all three parts— I do need to give you one bit of caution listening to this episode. There were some sound difficulties, which I was able to mostly edit out. However, the sound quality is a bit softer than normal, and that's one of those things that unfortunately couldn't be helped. But there were some great things talked about here, and I think any of the fans listening would really enjoy the conversation, so I tried to keep as much of it in as I could. There were some moments where... It was just too difficult to make out what was going on, so we made the choice to cut that in the interest of clarity. But everything David is talking about is spot on, so let's go ahead and get started right now. On tap today, we have David Wilson. How are you doing this day? Good, sir. I'm great.
1: Thank you. I'm marvelous. i nice to see you. How are you doing?
0: I am doing fantastic. It is a warm, very warm day out there, but I'm (laughs) looking forward to sitting in the cool and talking creativity with you.
1: Yeah, we're, we're not going to warm, but it's probably a good thing that are predicting 40 degrees down in London, so <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm well of that one.
0: I had a really, really, I was very drawn to how you handle your approach to writing, because unlike a lot of the authors I talked to, you didn't just jump right into writing. You had a whole range with things like radio and, and other projects before you came to that.
1: Well, Kind mm, of not really. Um, the, the writing had been going on for, I guess, decades. Uh, but it was more just for myself. I mean, it was a kind of uh, you know, psychiatric self defense. A, a, a writer just writes, and, and you know, if he get stuck with your head, then great. If, if it ends up in paper in such a form that someone else wants to read it, uh, I guess that's a good. Yeah, I guess if someone else wants to report falls out of the air, that's a good scene. Um it, it it kind of I did get published earlier. Uh what I used to like was uh I guess wouldn't be called geopological thrillers. and that was the way he started to throw up my head. my son Finn uh, is a big horror fan. Oh, he's, he's a huge horror fan. Um, but there's also musicians, musician. You know, and he composes, you know, and the and producers, and of music, a lot of it seems to be used for the indie horror films, for soundtracks, and music, But so, well, I thought well, it would be a fun, be like, a personal one who's just this person who write something for it, so I thought it was a horror story, um, which you like, and I thought it more of it. Then one day I, I, got a, well, I got a spam email, a uh, sort of scammer, saying, you've won the publisher's competition and you can't do the wrong And I, was, I had typed out a, a nice sarcastic email and my finger was literally hovering over the, the same department, the pen and I said, so, oh, but the publisher's been in touch yet. <laughs> so I, I said, what do you mean? And he had, uh, It turns out he sent the story away to a publisher who the vinyl, sort of a uh, short story. And uh, I had been almost before I could, I could the story uh, anyway. out um, So, you know, that was, but then the radio got into it. You know, got with the story. And then it really do something to play, you know, read it out of one year film my story um,
0: by which genre, I, mean, I just don't stop writing I and mean, uh, if you're a writer you just don't so having the author for a short story that's another thing as well so that's yeah just the thing about when you writing hits you and you finally find something that you, you, you almost find your voice that's the, that's the cliche you can't stop once you hit that point Oh, no, you so you're pitching stuff now, you're, you're practicing your craft in the background here. If you hit something, if you get the, the golden opportunity, a story that you'd really like to tell, how do you plan to attack that? What do you see that being like?
1: In terms of what it.
0: Well, in terms of what kind of, uh, what plot elements really excite you? Is there a, a type of book that you, you model or a type of story that you, you feel drawn to?
1: <laughs> you know I really think that this um,
0: okay.
1: I, I realize that's probably not the answer everyone does here, but you know, I read everything in the and if I, I, you know if it's if it's not real, if it's not science-based, I have enormous difficulty putting it on paper. I'm still trying to. It. <laughs> yeah, it's something that,
0: that's yeah. That draws on on the the real life science that we're seeing right now. Those stories can be compelling, and yeah, and when the audience can connect them because they can see it in the world right next to them, that's that's really really fun. Do you have colleagues or writing groups that you lean on? No, not because I
1: don't want them. I was in a very isolated place.
0: That could be rough, because um, yeah. I, I was found myself in the same position a couple of years back. A lot of writing advice you'll you'll forget will tell you that you should have groups to lean on and and r- r- peers and that's that's right. it's 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 good sure. advice, but it depends entirely on the the people you're leaning on having good feedback and having the skills to give that feedback and that's not guaranteed in any way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. But
1: the other side of that is just pure enthusiasm. You know, if it's fun and
0: probably so And there are online places you can go that, that can help you grow that but then you have the same kind of fear is that what if the person reading this isn't in a good place to give you a, a good Feed review on what you're you're submitting there? Sure.
1: Um, Online is all very well, but I, I've you talking about creative
0: embedding. And I, I about that. Nice it's nice to be in a group of people, uh, physically in a group of people. Mm-hmm. 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 When you we see the, the communities that they get formed up, we've been through Twitter, for example. Yeah. and And what's your take on how those communities Relate to each other, the the level of respect that a lot of artists have seen. Okay, that that can be a good thing. Yeah,
1: well, I guess so. You know, I, again, it just depends who who, who, who I think, I mean, just, you end up being in the with. Well one thing I have found is just you know, the the of the music groups, you know, just the writers community is a thing that, that, that ever worked for especially
0: uh, um, to one of those yeah, indeed I one thing I've seen is that the there's a lot of clickiness between writers of different genres which you really wouldn't necessarily expect there to be like that. and, and, yeah. and genres are are fluid now. You you can you can combine them very easily and the audience seems to go along with that.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, there's a great deal more cross-general work going on, which suits me. I, I don't really... I've never believed in genre uh, the, the, you know, the definition of a genre is a mechanism invented by a If you're a writer, you just have to write. And you have to write something to get here. You know, life doesn't work in be show. So you're writing about a series of events that happens.
0: Can't really if this, is, if this is how it works if it works at level. Then you can just write it. In when you say uh, so what is your favorite? I should I don't want to say what's your favorite book, what's your favorite story that has captured <laughs> your imagination and made you <laughs> And it kind of got you to see the value in, in reaching for these new worlds.
1: And then, you know, standards like got some of those stories out of the Some I knew, great. And just depending on the story. MR James. I love getting there. It takes me of You know, he was even back in the 1800s. And I guess the style of his is. Uh, these days, unusual, it's, it's a very flashy style of opening, that you for it. The story, uh, and then you're up to date, guys, like Chris Lipper, uh, who is new for anything but oral, sort, of or sort of stuff like that. You know, a wonderful book, one of my favorite horror stories. Although The darkness, and that is very little in the way of the world. It's very much all about the atmosphere. And I guess you know, the first project that I show is the exercises in the atmosphere. The young is going and you're definitely seem to be a person that that looks
0: into the the idea of, of a, a world of the mind, or the, the, the broad stories of, of older science, older types of science fiction, I should say, uh, Lovecraft is one that I've struggled with a little bit. I'll be honest with you. It seems yeah. seems like the fact that it's almost become a meme that yeah <laughs> that the, uh, it, it weakens
1: it. Yeah, I, I have problems with that too. Uh, but horror writing based on the same. The same sort of geographical and cultural context, like let I mean, there are guys the who really do that often. This is mainly up to the opinion. People like Joseph Simply, not everyone is there. But... So, when we're talking about um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, yes, you know, yes, the, the whole New England thing, yes, uh, so the whole. Thing. And some of the stories working somewhere can be more meaning-like these days, and I yeah, absolutely I... agree with that. Uh, but then I was, I was you know, I, I mentioned guys like who are still alive, guys who brought that meaning and sort of book more up to date, uh, guys who are still like Joseph A. Sickly being with a couple of weeks. Doing, but, uh, one and, like, fantastic new England stories, very kind of uh, if you like. watching the, the Stephen King gets that sort of thing, so very own star. Uh, he gives a look, a, look, a whole bunch of documented a bunch of uh, the weird additions to those stories, the monster stories. Uh, she's sometimes called um, the Ghost Master General because she's become a sort of weird side historian for her. Uh, also, recently, an autobiography, that which is actually been written in 100 chapters, each of them exactly 100 words. Uh, which is a fantastically interesting exercise to attempt yourself. And certainly something you don't want to be more than I mean, 100 years is nothing. You're, you're wondering, you know, how this story goes on. But okay. then you can go into the next chapter. Sure. Fantastic. Yeah. And that's all right. Yeah, that's still in arms. In fact, the only thing I've months ago. Um, there was a Welsh writer called Catherine McCarthy, co uh, she brought out a collection of stories of um, myths and memories. And you know we were talking about genres uh and I was saying that I despise the, the whole genre thing as, as being a you know, construct of marketers. But for us, we definitely fall into the uh, sort of folk world. I think. For, the whole general thing, we read nouns the purpose, it the in purpose, rather than expanding it. Because it's someone who buys books has the conception that, oh, yeah, I read folklore, and they're all going to look at it There's so much wonderful reading waiting there, I think, a big book should just be marked as a big book.
0: Yeah, I' sitting here listening to you talk about Lovecraft, and uh, the, the word I used earlier was memification. And, and then you make yeah. the, the really, really good point about Stephen King, and I suddenly think, okay, all, almost the same thing happened, but he almost did it to himself. And I like Stephen King a lot.
1: Me too. I, I love his writing, but I agree he always did it to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like he's too good or, or too prolific. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot a lot of the
0: films that made of the works work sound as well. Uh he often he was famous for not liking the movie versions of almost anything he wrote, and I'd like to but you kept making them. Yeah, so yeah, well,
1: you know, if if uh if that's how you make a living, yeah, then hey, go make a living. I don't
0: begrudge you the paycheck, but uh, at, at the when people are mostly remembering you from the, the movie versions that you didn't like. And, and I strongly encourage people to go back and read the source material because it is, yeah. it's much better in terms of world building. It's much better in terms of it making sense. Yes, and especially making sense. Yeah. Yes. It's actually not necessarily as scary, but more engaging, if that makes any sense.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think I it's waiting far more engaging
0: than any of them. It's now that we're in an era when the, the connected universe is suddenly trendy where it wasn't for quite a while except for, you know, the the, the, the core fans. I really feel like that's material that's, that's ideal for that, that people are just kind of passing over.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a whole bunch of things these uh, uh, days. People don't seem to be taking up their shoes uh, and um, I wonder if, if you know, filmmakers have uh, sort of lost that courage, but uh, if they simply want to a remix of films which were huge box office hits, sticks um, people should be taking up, you know, new stories, new writers, and, you know, some... Some companies are doing a lot of great film books, like but nothing then gets done with it. And that's, that's a real change. There's really. a lot of new stuff over well, there, which you've made really tremendous things. Why is no one making it? I think it's it's uh, financial and commercial. I,
0: I like that word courage because that, that really is what it boils down to. In an era when su- financial success with genre material is so so likely to not take risks on very good but unknown properties, it's a real shame. It, it shows that it is. Know. It really is.
1: And if you look at all the biggest box office hits, mm-hmm. that is what they did. They did take the risk if did. That's how they ended up with such a big box office hit. I and mean, Unless you do that again, you're not going to have you know, that kind of commercial success.
0: Its, it, it's almost like that the courage, and I would say the the calculated risk taking to be willing to say, this doesn't have to be a hit, but if it doesn't lose a ton of money, we might have something down the road to try yeah. something out, let it grow legs.
1: Exactly, I completely agree. I mean, look, look at uh, you know Joe's, for instance. I mean that was a relatively commercially successful food but only relatively. The, the visuals weren't there in the movie. As soon as Spielberg made it, and they—you know—they're
0: they, one of the, the biggest films that was ever made. Yeah, we had a couple of people that worked on Jaws on here, and that the I—the the fact that it came together the way it did—it <clears> started <throat> out, you know, from a book that wasn't super related to the movie. It had its connections, but they—they they went through a big revision in the the novel to script process, yeah. and then the movie had very modest ambitions at first, even though it came it was technically great, but they just wanted to make a good movie and they did, and people grabbed onto it. They sure said that.
1: Uh, but you know, as you say, that's how we started out. They just said, hey, let's make a non-crack movie. Let's, mm-hmm. let's make something that, that breaks even that makes a uh, you know, maybe even makes a bit of a profit. Mm-hmm. You can't go for a, a, a blockbuster because you know Mm-hmm. No until so it becomes a watch, you just have to make a good film. And it's a about like starting with you after what you've done in your head. Um, but then you are thinking, well, let's just polish it up, make it you know acceptable to a reader, and if a friend becomes a bit fun, but I don't think you can sit down and make one.
0: Uh, it's it's unfortunate, and I always love to go back to the, the original source material, the books, the comics, or whatever whatever that thing started out as as the way to, to watch that seed grow. And yeah. I, I, I think the fact that we're fast-tracking everything, that it has to go from an idea to a multi-billion dollar franchise within about three months,
1: yeah.
0: that's that's tragic for the creators. It
1: really is. It really is. And it's the creators that produce up with it. You know, he didn't agree to what, what kind of films would you
0: doing? Indeed. Indeed. Oh, well, David, I really like where this is going here. Like I said, I've had a little trouble catching every bit of it here, but I want to quit while we're ahead. Okay. Where can people follow your adventures <laughs> on the internet? Thank you.
1: Uh, the me on Twitter, um, at D.B. Wilson author, I think I have some stuff up on medium that would also be under DVDSE. Okay. Uh, okay. I have a fair bit of stuff on sound play, which is, is really the audio files in some of our radio broadcasts. Um, so that's, that's some of the stories I'm looking just reading it. That's all you can find at the moment apart from. There's a couple of short stories that were published in uh, the horror scene of G.D. Wreckless Magazine. People like uh, Rance Gamble, Stephen like, King, worked for that for free because it was one of those sort of uh, platforms, I guess. So I was very honored to, to have a good piece of this. I don't really understand the other no. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Uh, I've got a couple of things published uh, by. Scottish publishing company called Crovus, C-R-O-W-E-E-N-S. They do a short horror anthology every a sort of Christmas ghost story anthology. So uh, there's last year's one I had one published in, that's called *Season Petros, Yems by Crovus. that's available on Amazon. Um there should be another one coming out. This, this is a film, a story I've just sent that would be accepted for that one. I have no idea what the paper would be yet. But, yeah. I, I think as much on on medium and uh, and sound quote as I know, I mean, basically. Sound quote, you don't get a lot of space of uh, stories, a lot of space of music, but. Uh, the only one you're selling them, then you have to pay money for that. Right? These stories are I'm not selling them, they're not for that school, so I'm not paying money for that. So there's only, I think there's something like five, six hours worth of stories up there or something like that. They're fun, you know, uh, they're, they're entertaining. Um, same with medium though, there's a bunch of stuff on the I'm probably going to put a few more up there in May, I think, uh, a of the which uh, I have not submitted to a proper which I'm going to put up there because it's very different from the first, it's, it's, uh first version of the which is an interesting concept as a different data. So I will put a little bit there. Um, publishing wise. You may well see a couple of novels coming out in, in a year or so, um, I have not actually seen <laughs> had the time or, or patience to submit them to publishers yet. Well. Um, but I think that's that's coming up in the, the next two or three months, So I'll start submitting to publishers and these things and see where we get. And they, they should be very um, successful, I guess, whenever they're they're any report what plans are looking for. Uh, I'm feeling sure I know what competition we're looking for after some of the, of the So I think we'll get some more of those. Uh, if there are Dr. novels coming out, you'll be interested.
0: Well, thank you. I, normally I uh, I list all of my guest works and materials and links on the w- show notes on my website AaronBostic.com. I will also do that for yours, but you've actually gone one step further and allowed me to add some of your work specifically into the episode, so I'm going to append that onto our conversation at the end. Oh, fun. So I'm going to ask our guests to keep listening after the closing because some of your work is going to be coming up very soon. the blankets
1: over your heads. Walk the (laughs) doors. Thanks very much, buddy. You're very welcome. Thank you. Look forward to speaking to you, again.
0: I would like to thank David for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. A reminder that at the end of this episode, David has offered some of his writing samples available for your listening pleasure. If you're hearing this episode right as it hits the internet, remember that you still have a few days to enter the Coffee Lifts Creatives Writing Contest from the Sci-Fi Coffee Company. This is a company that's already gone above and beyond to offer a great coffee with a fantastic sci-fi theme to it, but they want to make that sci-fi theme better and they want your help to do it. They've offered a writing contest on their website, sci-fi-coffee.com, that will offer you the chance to write the background for some of their flavors, see your work published on their website, and possibly even get paid for winning the contest. If you'd like to order some of their coffee, remember that you can get 10% off of your order by using the Coupon code HUNGRY, as in Hungry Trilovite.
2: In the winter season, when the holly king holds sway, the nights are long and the days are dark. Things move in the mist and their footsteps on the stairs. This is the time when people give half an ear to the old tales and feel the breath of the other world on their necks. It's the time for chilling tales and spooky stories and Radio Sky has an exclusive preview of a new collection of Scottish chillers by D.P. Wilson. So gather round the fire and listen, if you dare.
3: The Children of the kayak. They say that something came out of the North Sea before it was the North Sea long before the vast tsunami that swept the East Coast clean of human life, and it's been living in Bankery Forest ever since. In those days, it was all woods and grassland, and you could walk all the way to Denmark. Nowadays, everything's penned in by seas and roads and cities, but there are still forests up there that you can wander in till you die. And whatever lived in them still does. Our people's ancestors called them the Clan Nakayakh, but the ancestors of our ancestors had a different name for them. Those folk knew more, and their stories went back to the land under the sea. Those were the days when you had to travel in groups, and be sure to take your spear and your dogs because of the things that lived in the forests. We find bodies out there, and that's good, because we know they haven't been taken. It's when you do sweep searches for days and find nothing that the fear sets in. The old stories come back to haunt you and a dread of the forest fills you once again. You probably see me as a daft old man, but I was with search and rescue for more than 20 years and I don't give a toss what you think. There's something in those woods. It's ancient, it's evil and it takes people. I bet they wouldn't even let you see the reports They're all confidential to protect the victims' families. Aye, right. I'll tell you about one we had back in 1989. That's the one where we lost Finlay. A German family had gone camping in the forest as they do, always think they know best, and the wife came storming into the police station in Bankery. She'd already been shouting at folk in El and then turned the wrong way when she crossed the river and driven all the way out to Bridge Anyway. She came in with the kids shouting that her husband had run off or fallen into a deer pit. We laughed at first, mainly at the deer pit idea, but it turned out he'd only been yards from their tent getting water from the wee burn they'd camped beside. 10, 15 yards maybe. It had been about seven in the morning and the mist had come rolling in through the night. It was a thick one and that's what put the first shiver up me and started me thinking of the old tales. Always at night, or in the mist. You've heard of the big grey man of Ben McDewey, an impossibly tall spindly lanky figure that strides around waving its arms. Well, it's supposed to be like that. Tall, grey, thin and mad. Maybe that's why it likes the mist. Who knows. None of the stories describe its face. Maybe it doesn't have one or maybe by the time you're that close it's too late. Anyway, the mum told us she and the kids a girl of nine and a boy of thirteen had searched and searched for two hours. They'd covered every inch of ground for a quarter mile about, and all they'd found was his water flask. That's when Finley Cruikshank piped up. Yon Loon's deed, he told us. The wifey here's done him in doing the woods, and she's covering her tracks. There was some laughter, but quite a few serious faces. We'd had something similar happen about five years before that turned out to be a murder. But that was just the start. Turned out the wifey had more English than we'd thought and she'd got the gist of what Finlay had said. She went ape and Finlay was on the back foot for sure. He had to backpedal big time and try and calm her down. Didn't fash quine? He was hodding his palms up. I didn't mean to insult ye. If I did, I'm awfully sorry. What I meant was we hate to look into often here, but we'll still be out searching all the same. There's no muckle difference when you're looking for a stiff. You can only imagine how it went from there, but we eventually got things calmed down and got the details and last known location of the missing person. The teams were called together and we drove out to the scene, which turned out to be way out past Finzine, up near the Alt Altdunny along Fungal Road. The mist was still down and the place was disorienting as hell, creepy too, no landmarks, just trees everywhere, tall grey silhouettes in the mist everywhere you looked. Thing is, we kept driving and she just kept saying no, no. She had got completely turned around and we ended up taking old forestry tracks as far as the Burna You can laugh, but it was the boonies all right. Nothing for miles but the forest, flat land, and a few streams. If you had one of those to navigate by, you were lucky because they all ended up in the River Dee eventually. It was mid-afternoon till we found their tent and the scene was just as she had described with a little stream about 15 yards away. The woman showed us where she had found her husband's flask and the kids ran to pick up their walkman. We could see that the ground had been pretty well trampled all around the tent, but the farther away you got, the fresher things were. Some of us were gillies and trackers and we kept everyone else back while we slowly examined the ground in detail, taking our sweet time about it. We walked outwards in a spiral pattern from the tent until we got to the burn. And that's when things started to get weird. We had identified the husband's tracks, and, sure enough, we found some down at the wee stream. They seemed to cross it at one point and start out away from the tent, but then they just stopped. I don't mean he stood still or turned around. I mean they simply disappeared. I think Finlay was the first one to notice that. He was always the best of us. But he said nothing until Archie Sangster and I also came to a stop and began looking at each other. Aye, Finlay said quietly before getting down on his belly and squinting at the ground all around the area where the tracks stopped. After about 20 minutes he stood up, stretched out his back then indicated an area and said, what do you think boys? While Archie and I crawled around on our bellies, Finlay sat down against the tree and rolled a cigarette. He was finished it before we were done. I couldn't see anything at first, but that's because I was looking in the wrong way. I was looking for human or animal tracks, a certain range of shapes and sizes, things I was familiar with. But when I simply lay down and looked at the depressions in the turf, I began to see what had got Finlay's attention. There was a series of shallow depressions in the ground, only just visible and about 20 inches long. If you studied them very carefully, they were roughly shaped like a human foot, but one that had been distorted in a hall of mirrors, long and narrow. Sometimes you thought you could make out toes, mostly not. They were spaced around three to four yards apart. That was the step length right to left, and they appeared to be coming in from the far reaches of the forest. They stopped about five yards from where the husband's prints disappeared and then turned around and made back in roughly the direction they had come. Were they deeper, like whatever made them was carrying something? Maybe. All three of us exchanged long looks before anyone said anything. We have to follow it. Finna was the first to speak, but he wasn't giving much away. Another short silence before I said, Aye. Archie just nodded. We were all very subdued, and I could see the colour of the other two had drained a bit. The first sweep search had been organised, and was heading out at 90 degrees to our direction, so help wouldn't be that far away. My gun's in the jeep, firmly said, and once his deer rifle was over his shoulder, we all set out in line abreast. I carried a big skinning knife, and I know Archie did too. The going was very slow, and no one said a word as we tried to follow the nearly non-existent trail. I had a tingle between the shoulder blades and a creepy feeling of being watched. The other two were glancing over their shoulders more than usual and walking hunched up and sullen. We had all grown up around here and I know we were all thinking along similar lines but no one would say it. The thick mist hadn't lifted all day and it had taken us more than an hour to cover about a mile through the forest. Now that we knew what we were looking for, the trail wasn't impossible, but it was still faint and difficult, making for slow going. The day was wearing on, and I had begun thinking about the dark. Anyone bring a torch? I asked in a quiet voice. They were the first words any of us had spoken since we started out. Finlay gave a little snort of laughter. Aye, he said. Archie shook his head. That's one of us then, I commented, and Finlay gave a faint smile. "'Frightened of the dark?' he taunted. "'Scared the bogle will get you.' "'In all honesty, I was, "'but I wasn't going to admit that here to these men. "'Perhaps I should have, but it was Archie who replied. "'It's no a bogle, Finley,' he hissed, then even quieter. "'You know you shouldn't joke about Nadan you didn't call. Whished man!' Finley snapped. "'He looked angry, but whether at Archie or himself "'it was impossible to tell. "'I was still surprised at what I had just heard.' Around here, we don't usually talk about them, and if we do, we almost never name them. The only times I had heard them referred to by the oldsters, they had been called Clan Macayach, Children of the Hag. But what Archie had said was different. It was Gaelic all right, but it meant the Children of the Forest. Was that an older name? From a time before the old Celtic gods held sway over the north? Finlay was angry, and Archie looked embarrassed. So I did as we always do, and kept my mouth shut. Whatever we were tracking, it certainly wasn't a child. After another hour, the light was beginning to fade, and we thought about turning back. We should have, but the trail was still leading us on, and we knew that by morning, it would have all but vanished. So we exchanged glances, but no one said a word, and we pressed on. An hour after that, it was fully dark, and we were tracking by torchlight. Which isn't as difficult as it sounds. If you hold the torch close to the ground and shine its light at a shallow angle, it can actually cause prints to stand out even more. At any rate, we were no slower. What's more, the mist appeared to have thinned a little, and there was a full moon. Its light permeated the mist and made it glow. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but it can be quite magical. That night, however, it was just plain creepy. Eventually, even going slow and using the torch, we lost the trail. Nothing mysterious, the ground just got harder and the trail fainter until none of us could make out anything at all. I, for one, was secretly relieved. No one had seen tracks like that before, and we all had a foreboding at the back of our minds that we wouldn't put into words. We sat down and scratched our heads, and I was about to say, let's call it a day, when Finley beat me to the punch. I say we head one more mile on the last bearing and then call it a day. Archie and I looked at each other, and then reluctantly nodded. It was the worst decision I ever made. We plowed on for a while until eventually, I began to feel distinctly ill at ease. Looking at the other's faces, I could tell that they were feeling the same thing, but still, No one said a word. We could see a change in the quality of light ahead. And then, all of a sudden, literally from one step to the next, I was filled with an overwhelming dread. I can't describe it any better than to say it was sheer, unreasoning terror. It swept over us from nowhere, occasioned by nothing. At the same moment, we could see that the light was changing because we were stepping out into a clearing in the forest, maybe a hundred yards across. In the weird glow of the mist, I could see a tarn in front of us, a wee lochen, perhaps half the width of the clearing, and at the opposite side of the lochen was a small knoll, perhaps 30 feet in height. The lochen had an unnaturally dark appearance, and the knoll had the size and shape of what we often called a knockman sheen, or fairy mound. There are still farmers in these parts who won't set iron to the ground in such a place, except that it wore a jagged crown of dead and broken trees. Even the grass that covered it had a dark and unhealthy appearance, and the water in the lochon looked somehow thick and oily. There was a sound like wind in the trees, but the mist wasn't moving. Finlay shone his torch upward. Everything looked so still, and that whistling now sounded like a distant screaming. There were almost words I thought I could make out far away and drawn out Hilfer! Hilfer! Then a deeper voice, right behind us, said Hilfer! and laughed. We whipped around, but there was nothing there. When Archie and I turned back, Finlay was gone, his torch lying on the wet ground. Our eyes had been off him for only two or three seconds. There had been no sound, no scream, Nothing. I picked up his torch and shouted, Finlay! at the top of my lungs, and, as Archie followed suit, I caught a glimpse of movement on top of the mound. It was anything but clear, but I swear it looked like an impossibly tall, implausibly spindly being climbing down into the ground, waving its arms in a hideous frenzy. There was nowhere near us for anyone or anything to hide or run to, it was completely impossible for Finlay to hide or have been hidden during the time he was out of our sight. Then, the worst of all, Finlay's voice within that awful whistling sound. There were only three words, but they got louder and louder as if the source of the voice was rushing towards us. The last words I heard Finlay Cruikshank utter were Run! 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 To our everlasting shame, we did just that. We bolted. I held Finlay's torch, and we weren't tracking anything now. We ran back the way we had come, and there was a loud, deep groan like a ship's timbers about to burst. It sounded as if it came from under the ground, beneath our feet, and we couldn't seem to reach the timberline at the edge of the clearing. "'Come on!' I gasped, and pushed Archie between his shoulders. I had never seen my friend's face contorted like that before. It was deeply shocking. I'm telling you, we sprinted for a good five minutes without ever getting any closer to the trees while the laughing and groaning came from beneath and behind us. It was only when, in a last desperate and unconscious act, I grabbed Archie's hand and we struggled together that we were suddenly among the trees. Not just among trees, but a good half of the way back to where we had started at that poor German family's tent. Not long before we reached it, We heard people calling our names, and we answered with more relief than I have words to express. It was the others. They had completed a big sweep search, covering one whole quadrant of the designated area. They found nothing. When they inevitably asked us where Finlay had got to, Archie and I exchanged a glance. We got separated around three miles out, I said. I don't think any of us know that part of the country well. We're more from the east of here. There is an unwritten rule in search and rescue that you don't talk about the weird things, and there are more of those than you might think, except after a few pints at the Christmas dew, and then only to close friends. The guys went into a huddle, and the only gilly from out that way told us, there's a lot of bogs and sinkholes out there. How well does Finlay know the land? About as well as we do, I replied, and the gilly sighed. Bugger, he decided, we'd better do a search. Do you two know where you separated? Now I could be confident. Yes, I replied. We've got known bearings and distances. We can go straight there. So we headed back into that endless forest, feeling a little better now, that we had numbers on our side. Everyone had a head torch, as well as a handheld lamp, and we made plenty of noise, which kept our spirits up. We reversed our bearings and headed straight for the dark lochen with its menacing mound, walking line abreast so that we spread out over a third of a mile as we advanced. To cut a long story short, we didn't find it. Not that night, the next day, nor any of the next three days. A helicopter was called in from RAF Lossiemouth, and it spent the best part of a day mowing the lawn over the entire area. There was no clearing no lochin, no mound. Now I understand the look the local ghillie had given me when I had described the eerie clearing and this mysterious knock. He knew this land as well as I know my own patch, and he had never seen the place. Despite repeated searches, we never found Finlay's remains, nor those of the German tourist. Archie and I came in for quite a bit of ribbing because of our police report, which had to state at least the bare facts in terms of times, distances, and locations. The younger guys would wave their hands and go Woo Then, sure enough, at the Christmas do, I ended up having to tell the story again, this time to an audience of two, a police inspector who had more than a passing acquaintance with Macabre Tales, and an old time search and rescue teammate, Donald Gunn, who was retiring that night. Donald's face had gone almost white, when I got to the part about the menacing clearing and the knock with its broken crown of dead trees and he abruptly got up and walked away as I began describing what we heard and saw there. The local gossip was that Donnie's father had been a drunk and one night he'd gone wandering off into the forest. The 16-year-old Donnie had run after him when he found out but had returned in the morning alone. Donnie's father was never seen again and Donnie himself had been a slightly subdued individual ever since. Later, when I found him outside and we ransacked my crumpled pack of cigarettes, I thought he looked more relaxed than I had ever seen him, almost relieved. I put it down to his retirement until he placed a hand that was still very strong on my arm, looked me straight in the eye, and said quietly, Don't ever talk about it, and pray you never find that place again. And with that, He was gone back into the raucous throng.
2: To Chillers with D.P. Wilson. Radio Sky has an exclusive 14-part serialisation of the new novel by local author D.P. Wilson. So lock all the doors, pull the blankets over your heads and join us. After all, it's just a bit of fun.
3: Chapter 2. The Word and the Stone. When the dust had settled, Roger called me over for a one-to-one. He was just about to publish, and I couldn't decide if the chat was meant to put his mind at rest or mine. He intimated that there were not only some things he would like to ask me, but a few he would like to get off his chest as well. How could I refuse? The history department's new digs in Teviot Place were certainly a good deal more prestigious than our own, having been the old medical school where Western medical science was born. Think of bark and Hare, yeah. Gilchrist had provided me with a pre-publication proof of his paper, and it ran to 213 pages. I had always thought of historians as long-winded, but in this case he was detailing his sources and providing an analysis of the text found on the stone. Yes, they had found text on the stone. And that was a huge problem that would cause furious controversy unless many of the questions it raised could be answered before they were asked. That was why my report of the excavation was included. At 30 pages, it was fairly flimsy, but as site director, I could establish context, and my guesses at dating would be at least respected, if not agreed with. The technical report from the LIDAR guys was in there too. Roger had even called in a geologist in an attempt to date the carvings. I already knew that the paper was going to cause a hullabaloo, but I figured I'd leave that to Roger. My role in the affair was limited strictly to the physical archaeology, and I took no part in the interpretation of findings. Good for me, my reputation was safe, but I had to respect Gilchrist for putting his on the line in such a bold way. Finding text on what you were calling a genuine Pictish boundary stone was controversial enough, but what it said was really going to put the cat among the pigeons. The text was in Latin, and the translation was simple. It read, Stranger, pass not this way. The curse of Reged lies beyond. I placed my copy of the report on his desk and took a comfortable seat while Roger's secretary bustled in with coffee. Roger always had good coffee. "'You think I've missed anything?' he asked straight away. I shook my head. "'No,' I said. "'It's very thorough.' He grimaced. "'I'm trying to dot every I and cross every T here. "'I know,' I told him. "'And for what it's worth, I think you have.' He didn't look unsure so much as nervous. I'd never seen him like this before.' "'You sure you want to go through with this?' I asked. And he didn't hesitate before answering. "'Of course, wouldn't you? "'The find's genuine and the interpretation's state-of-the-art.' I thought about it before nodding. "'Yes, I would, but I don't care nearly as much "'about the opinions of my peers as you do, Roger. "'The academic world's known for its bitchiness and jealousy. "'It thrives on pettiness of Trumpian proportions. "'I guess if I cared that much, "'I'd go around and punch someone in the face.' "'He laughed.' I think you actually would, he said, which is one of the reasons I trust you. Here's another. You've never gone behind my back, and you don't play politics. You're all about the science. I probably reddened. I'm not much good at that kind of thing. What are you getting at? I asked. Gilchrist slumped back in his chair and turned his gaze to the window. He was silent for so long that it began to get uncomfortable. But then he said, I haven't revealed my primary source. Now I was interested. My eyes didn't stray from his face as he continued. You know I have a bit of a weakness for antiques, he began. That was putting it mildly. He was known to spend every spare minute scouring auctions, highways and byways for the damn things. He had unloaded a fortune over his career, but he would learned enough to have made most of it back buying and selling on his own account. His rueful smile faded as he continued. Five years ago, I attended a conference in Glasgow. I wasn't due to speak until the afternoon, so I spent the morning poking around a few dealers I knew in the Finiston area of the city. I'd pretty much given it up for a bust when the wind got up. I could see that the clouds were coming in from the west, black as the devil's coal cellar. It was one of those unseasonal storms that you get in the west, Thunder and lightning and lorry loads of hail, except this one was a monster. When they eventually began to drop, the hailstones were the size of marbles, and it was just like someone had flipped a switch. Within five seconds or so, I could see people running with cuts on their faces. They simply wanted off the street as fast as possible. I did too. I dived for the nearest door and found myself in a place I hadn't gone near for years. It was one of the local antique shops, but it specialised in high-end artefacts, mostly large items of furniture, and its prices weren't just high-end, they were off the scale. I had always despised people who ripped others off in that way, but the quality of this dealer's goods was second to none, and I dare say some of my emotions were down to simple jealousy that I couldn't afford the wonderful things he had on display. The dealer was running towards the shop window as I staggered in the door, and we both gawped through the shop front window as the street outside became nearly as dark as night. We exchanged a wordless look of bafflement and returned to staring at the white carpet of hailstones piling up in the street. Eventually, we tore ourselves away from the apocalyptic vision, and he beckoned me through to a comfortable room in the rear where he had some truly fine coffee brewing. I was a little uncomfortable at first, but the conversation soon turned to his recent finds and acquisitions, and I was quickly on home turf. To cut a long story short, we toured his premises, inspecting items and chatting about their history, and he never once tried to sell me anything. I think he was just happy to have a knowledgeable conversation, but something caught my eye, and it wouldn't let me go. We had walked past it twice, and he had ignored it in favour of other objects both times. The artefact rested against a wall, covered in a thin dust sheet, and I just knew what it was without ever peering underneath. When I asked him about it, he strode over and lifted the cloth without hesitation, and I saw that I was right. It was a high-backed settle in the ancient Anglo-French style. Certainly medieval, probably 1300s, I thought, but the thing that drew my attention was the carvings. The whole face of the backboard was covered in them, beasts and devils surrounded by a forest. I had never seen an example so rich in detail. The second my eyes fell upon it, I knew I had to have it. I asked my new friend if he knew what it was, and he told me... He thought it was a banqueting seat or a pew from a church and that it appeared to be pre-1700. I tried to hide my excitement and explained that he was half right. The piece was a high-backed settle from an ecclesiastical setting and from its quality and richness, probably from an aristocratic side chapel in a cathedral or, more likely, a monastery, given its age. I dated it at 1350-1400, to 1400 and asked him if it was for sale. I asked if he knew the item's provenance, and he admitted straight away that he did not, but that it had come from a border's property. I knew that such things may wander a little over time, but generally not too far, until they reach the trade. It's only then that they go global. I entertained the possibility that the piece was from one of the great border abbeys now in ruins. "'somewhere with a rich endowment from a family "'who would have use for a private chapel. "'And around about 13.50? "'The options got fewer the longer I thought. "'The chap was impressed by my appraisal "'and was delicately trying to broach the subject of what I did for a living. "'When I put him out of his misery, he looked intrigued, "'and I could see that he wanted something. "'Well, so did I.' He asked if I might do him the honour of appraising some of his more interesting acquisitions from time to time. For a fee, of course. I saw my chance and said that depended on how much he was asking for the medieval settle. I was ready for a shocker, but when he mentioned a figure of £5,000 I nearly sat on the floor. I made a offer of 2000 and asked how badly he needed my help and reputation in the end, we agreed on £3,000, and I left the place wondering what I had just done. To be honest, I think I was a little in shock, but I couldn't stop thinking of those carvings. They were wonderful, raw, bestial and powerful, and I had never seen them like. I couldn't wait to get to grips with them. I guess Gilchrist saw me looking at my watch because he sighed and cut to the chase. The piece was so big, it had to be delivered a few days later, in the back of a large van with two guys to unload. Being a weekday, I was at the university and when my wife called, I immediately got a sinking feeling. The guys had dropped my prize acquisition on the tarmac and there had been a horrible cracking sound. My wife told them to remain exactly where they were until she had phoned me, but the second her back was turned, they jumped in the van and drove off. When I got home, my worst fears were confirmed. The backboard with those wonderful carvings was split in two, along an almost vertical line from top to bottom. I think I sat on the floor with my head in my hands for quite a while before I could find the heart to take a closer look at the damage. But look I did, and that's when things got interesting. One of the first things I noticed was a second crack running along the top edge of the backboard but this crack was as straight as a die and it quickly became obvious that it was a split in an unusually thick coat of lacquer. The lacquer had clearly been applied to disguise the fact that the backboard was not one solid piece of oak but two, like the bread in a sandwich. The carved section had been fixed onto the original backrest with a series of small wooden pegs and the edges lacquered over again and again to hide this fact. At that point, my only thought was to restore the piece as far as possible, and I called in a couple of chaps from your department, you may recall. Well, a couple of days later, I got a call from one of them and I could hear the excitement in his voice. He said they had found something unusual but they didn't want to take things any farther until I was present. I told him I was already on my way. I was still out of breath when they motioned me closer to their workstation and one of them took a long pin in each hand. He inserted the pins into the horrible vertical crack and slid them upward together. As he did so, I saw something emerge from the split in the lacquer where the two backboards were sandwiched together and my heart instantly began thumping. Professor Gilchrist held my gaze for a moment before continuing. It was a piece of vellum, and it was covered in script. I put on a pair of gloves and lifted it clear before examining it more closely. The script was Latin, and the penmanship clearly practiced, once again making me think of abbeys and monasteries. Like any text from the 13th or 14th centuries, it had obviously seen better days, and there was considerable degradation and damage, but parts of the text were still legible, and I can't describe my impatience to get it back to my office and begin translating. I asked if they could detect any other pages in there, but, as I suspected, the answer was that we'd have to take the thing to pieces to find out, so I thanked them for their time, and said I'd hit them with a translation as soon as I had one. Roger took a deep breath before pulling a thin folder from a drawer and laying it on the desk between us. My eyes remained on the folder while he said, Samples and dating first. The material is vellum and the ink is authentic, so produced at some expense and perfect for carbon dating, which places it between 1,200 and 1,300 with a preponderance of loci around 1260. He paused to pass me the reports in case I didn't believe him. I did, but it was good to see the figures supporting such an unusual story. What I couldn't know was just how wild it was about to get. Medieval is my thing, Gilchrist explained, and Latin, especially the 14th century Vulgate, so I translated the document myself, and I don't mind telling you. I felt like I'd gone way too far down the rabbit hole until we found that Pictish stone. He now passed me two handwritten sheets of paper. Here is a written transcription. Here is my translation. I'll read out loud as we go along and pucker up. This is about to get crazy. He wasn't wrong. As soon as he began reading. I felt like I was right down that rabbit hole along with him and Alice. Here is the history of the great Lord John Baliol, who is called the Curse of Regid, and whose family rules these lands. The Lord desired order above all things, but was greatly troubled by an unruly race of Picts who inhabited the region. These people called the land Regid, and claimed to have their own kings and laws, and refused to obey the laws of Lord John or pay his taxes. Here, Professor Gilchrist took his eyes off the translation and looked at me with a smile. The writer uses the derogatory term, pictunculi, or horrible little picts, borrowing from the Roman term, britunculi, horrible little Britons. Now, he continued, Therefore, The Lord mightily subdued the people of the land, putting entire villages to the stake. Again, he raised his eyes. Now, in this context, we're not talking about burning, which was a punishment for heresy and witchcraft. Here, the author means impalement. I made a face, and Roger nodded understanding. Impalement was a form of execution whereby a sharpened stake was forced into the rectum and then erected into a vertical position so that the victim's own weight caused it to travel slowly through the body, killing them over hours or even days. But the professor wasn't done with his clarification. And by entire villages, he said, what the writer means is men women, and children. That's barbaric, even for medieval times, I commented. True, Gilchrist said, but if you're faced with widespread violent insurrection in a remote area where help from the crown is unlikely to be forthcoming, I guess you either run home with your tail between your legs, or take drastic action. Moreover, the Picts wouldn't fight pitched battles, which meant that Belial's army was next to useless, so... What he did was march through the region, exterminating every Pictish settlement he came across. Again I shook my head. Ethnic cleansing, I said. Certainly, Gilchrist agreed. But not at all unusual for those days, and not seen as a crime, even by the church. He picked up the story again. Eventually the Picts in the region had had enough, and decamped, as the writer says, to the south, which I guess means Wales, although it might mean Ireland, but not before their shamans or holy men had got together in a huge ceremony and put a curse on John Balliol. Again, the professor looked up from his notes. Now, these were not priests. The writer makes it quite clear that although most Pictish kingdoms had been converted to Christianity, the people of Galloway, or perhaps, should I call it, Regged still adhered to the old ways. The word he uses for these individuals is borrowed from the Gaelic. He calls them Druids. I nodded. We knew that certain elements of the Druidic tradition survived in Ireland and parts of Scotland into the 18th century, but I didn't know about Galloway. Gilchrist agreed. I always suspected it, but could never prove it. Now we have written evidence, he said. I tried to lighten the atmosphere. A druid's curse, I chuckled. Pity we don't have the same for that. Roger's smile surprised me. But we do, he announced. The document records it, word for word. I must have gasped, because he laughed before he explained. It was written in Greek, not Latin, and it was nailed to the door of every castle, residence, farm or building owned or used by the Balliol family in the space of a single night. The writer of this document was a scholar because he not only transcribes the Greek, but translates it correctly. According to him, it said the following, John Balliol, by the blood of the people of Reged, which you spilled so plentifully in life, may your thirst for the same be unquenchable in death, always and forever. Wow, I think I said, incisive as ever. We just sat and smiled at each other for a few moments before I realised, there's more, isn't there? I asked. Roger's smile widened and he nodded. Christian or not, the people of the time apparently took the Druid's curse very seriously. The final third of the document talks about precautions. He paused to let that sink in. "'but this was my area, and I was ahead of him. "'You mean to stop Baliol walking or becoming a revenant?' "'I confirmed. "'Precisely,' he nodded. "'But this part of the document is where most of the damage is, "'and to make matters worse, it's in a different hand. "'It looks like it's been added much later, "'without the knowledge of the original scribe, "'and the Latin's terrible. "'There are fragments such as Sistendum. eum ambulantum, which can only be translated as to stop him walking. Then there are other phrases like domina issuit cor aeus interficium, which could have more than one meaning depending on the context, but we don't have the context. The most obvious meaning would be the lady ordered his heart cut, Roger rubbed his eyes, It took a while to deduce the intention of the second scribe, but I think he wrote that part of the manuscript as a warning. And, as such, I took the simplest, most straightforward meanings all the way through. The thing that validates my translation is that I found the stone. He gives obscure clues to its location in the simplest language. I chuckled. You did what every good historian is trained not to do. You found a treasure map and you followed it to your stone. But Roger was shaking his head. The stone's not the treasure, he stated quietly. It's a marker for something else. Something the writer calls the Curse of Regged. I think that's John Balliol's grave and finding that double interment would be one of the biggest discoveries in Scottish archaeology, ever. I think I sighed at that point. You know how this sounds. And he nodded with a rueful expression as I finished. You're telling me you started out with a treasure map, and now we've got fantasy kingdoms and magic curses. He threw up an arm and told me, I know, I know, but you of all people should understand. It's not us who believe in these things. It's the ones... Who wrote the document? And that phrase ties in with the incised script we found on the stone. You've seen the translation. Pass not this way, the curse of Regged lies beyond. I searched his face and said, So long as your objectivity is still in place, Roger. Of course it is, he assured me with a grin. Now, let's go hunt a vampire. We laughed.
2: Well, we hope you enjoyed Just a Bit of Fun by D.P. Wilson. Join us again next Thursday at 10pm for more chillers.